I like to begin with a blessing. Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam Asher Kidshanu B'Mitzvotav Etzivanu La'asok B'Divrei Torah, which is the traditional blessing, many of you know, that we say before Torah study, because we're talking about Torah in the broadest sense always. Um, and also because, uh, as I think I said last class, it's always hard for me to remember what I said last class, since I just start talking and never quite sure what I'm saying, but one of the things I, <clears throat> I am sure of is that if you grow up in Jewish community, or if you become Jewish as an adult and study Judaism, and you learn prayers, you inevitably learn Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, because, you know, Jewish prayers tend to start Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam. And I do recall having a conversation about this last time. There's the short version and the long version. That's the short version. Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Hamotzi Lachamina Arts. And it ends with, who brought forth bread from the earth. So you have that formula in the beginning, Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech Oh, the Cohens are here. Shelley and Mike, hi. <clears throat> Didi's cousins, how nice, and the other Shelleys. So, in any event, Baruch Atah, it's so distracting to look at people, you know that? It's like, I, I don't have to say anything, I can just watch everybody. Uh, anyway, I'll stop. It's nice that Jan Levine is here, in case we need a judge. Anyway, so we, we have a short version and a long version, as you all know. Baruch Atah Olam is the short version, and then there's something after. So, we say that, and then we say, you know, Borei Priyagafen, who brings, creates the fruit of the vine, or Hamotzi Lechem in Arts, who brings forth bread from the earth, or a whole bunch of other endings of blessings. That's the short version. And, of course, the long version, which we use, which I just used, we use when we light candles. We, we used it just last week for Hanukkah. Baruch HaTad Onai, Lehenu Melech HaOlam, Asher Kedchanu, Mitzvotav and then something. And that version is... Also, invoking God as giving us commandments. Asher Kedeshanu b'mitzvotav, who's made us sacred with your mitzvot, with your commandments. V'tzivanu, and commanded us to do something. And then you'd say in the blessing what allegedly God has commanded us to do. What I've always found so fascinating about those blessings, which are fundamental to Jewish spiritual life. I mean, any service any Jewish ritual event or occasion, every holiday, every celebration has different versions of Baruch It is the most anthropomorphic uh, version of how we talk about God. Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe who then commands something. And so every time we say that, if we paid attention to what the words actually literally mean, we are invoking this image since we're talking about 70-plus names of God, we're invoking this image of God as a supernatural being who makes commandments and commanded us to do certain things. And, of course, traditional Judaism taught that, believed that, and that's our inheritance from the past, that God is the commander. Uh, And when you come into the modern Jewish world, contemporary modern Jewish world of Reconstructionist Judaism and Reform Judaism um, and liberal Judaism in general, when you start wrestling with the idea of God as anything other than a supernatural being who commands, you suddenly run into lots of ambiguities and challenges with language. That's why in this prayer book, the Kol Shema prayer book, uh, there's a whole couple of paragraphs at the beginning about why they translated all of God's names in this list that I think we sent out to people that have 109 different versions of God's name in English. And because anytime you identify, words trip you up, words trap you, in because we think with words. And so once you say something with a word, you create an image, you create a vision of that and that's where your mind goes. And so for millennium, we have talked about with these prayers that we still use today. I mean, our prayer book still has Baruch in it. We invoke this image of God as a commander, and therefore we are the commanded. And we look at what 
we were commanded to do. And then liberal Jews, Reconstructionist Jews, Reformed Jews, contemporary Jews, wrestle with the issue of if you don't understand God as a commander, then why do you do things? Why do we do these things? When we felt the mitzvah was literally God's commandment, God said, circumcise your son at eight days. That's a good one. Particularly if you're a girl, it's a good one. But anyway, that's a good one. You know, it's from the Torah, uh, chapter 18, I think, of uh, Genesis, somewhere in there, where, of course, we all know the story. Abraham is commanded by God in Genesis (coughs) to circumcise himself, all the males in his household, whatever age they may be, his son Isaac at eight days, and then everybody else, and and all of his descendants from then on, anytime it's a boy at eight days, that's a commandment. So today, we are in the 21st century, as a rabbi in the 21st century, I I am one of those rabbis who uh, often, during the course of the year, is approached by uh, usually... Uh, a mother who's about to give birth, usually it's before they give birth, and knows it's going to be a boy, wrestling with, should I circumcise my son? As an example. And having, you know, lots of ambiguous feelings and conflicting feelings uh, about, should I circumcise my son? And why should I circumcise my son? And what's wrong with my son? And if, you know, why isn't he born perfect the way he is? And why am I cutting off a piece of his penis? And it seems brutal or it seems barbaric or it seems whatever to people. And they wrestle with that. Uh, and often both spouses, if there are two spouses, wrestle with the same question. And they often come and they sit with me and have a conversation about, you know, I, Rabbi, I don't really believe that God commanded me personally, that there's some supernatural being who commanded me to circumcise my son, but I feel compelled and I feel a little guilty no matter what I choose. If I don't do it, I feel guilty. If I do it, I feel a little guilty. And they wrestle with this issue. Uh, I bring it up because it it's one of those very... Con- you have to do something. I mean, after all... The baby boy is born, you have to make a choice. You either do it or you don't. You don't get to say, I'll think about it, and you know, and maybe in a couple of years, maybe we'll get around to it. People don't generally do that. I mean, I've, of course, I've had adult males who have circumcised, gotten themselves circumcised because they chose to do it. They became converted to Judaism, became Jews by choice, and, and by their own choice, chose to be circumcised. It's not something I require personally. Most rabbis do. Those of you who know me know and it require much. I encourage people to make their own choices. So, um, but I support someone who chooses to do that. And, and so people wrestle with, if God isn't a supernatural being, then all of these things we do. Why do we do all of these things we do? If God isn't a supernatural being who wrote the Torah, then what's sacred about the Torah? Or what makes something sacred? Becomes the question. It's not really about God anymore. Ultimately, it's what makes something sacred. And I think I mentioned, I'm sure I did, at some earlier time, you know, we human beings are, above all else, meaning makers. I don't know, if, can you see what I'm holding? It's a glass of water. I can't tell how much you can see. This is a glass of water. I want to drink some water. So, you know, it's a, literally a glass with water in it. And um, it doesn't look like a kiddish cup. But if this were um, the 24th, is that next week? Next week's the 24th. Yeah, Didi and I are going to be doing services here next week, leading services on the 24th, in between running around to all the churches for their era of Christmas uh, services. We're going to come here and lead Shabbat services. But if uh, I didn't have a silver Kiddush cup, and I took this, and I went, Baruch Baruch and it would be... A kiddish cup, right? Kiddish, kadosh, kiddush, is the Hebrew word for holy. This would become a holy, sacred vessel. Why? Is, what would make it a holy, sacred vessel? Because I say so. Because of what I do with it. Because of what I invoke with this. Happens to be a, oh, it's an espresso cup. Little in. 
with this Nespresso cup. And that's what we do. And that's why the Torah is sacred. It's not sacred because a supernatural being dictated it. And really, circumcision isn't a sacred act because a supernatural being commanded Abraham. Maybe. I wasn't around then. Not probably likely that a voice from heaven came down and said to Abraham, circumcise your son, even though that's the stories in the Torah are about that. That's how we tell stories because that's how human beings function. We are storytellers. In our stories is the reflection of the meaning that we are meaning makers. And we share the meanings that we make in life by telling stories. And one of those sacred series of sacred stories that we tell are reflections of every religious tradition. This is why all of these issues of the 70 names of God or the 109 names of God that are in English in the Reconstructionist Prayer Book or the other version of the, of the 70 names of God in the Talmud is 72 names of God and there's another version of it, 70 faces of God or 72 faces of God depending upon who's speaking and who's counting and how they're doing it. Speaking of faces of God, uh, we were talking about faces of God, and Didi said her name for the faces of God, face of God, would be Punim. Punim is the Yiddish version of Panim, which is the Hebrew version of face, your face. I am looking at, I don't know how many, faces of God. Some of you live and some of you not so live, but I, I'm seeing your faces. And this is ultimately where we find where holiness comes from. It comes from us. It comes from within us and how we hold literally our experiences of the world. And, you know, the Talmud famously said, quotes God, actually this is a midrash in Hebrew from Exodus midrash because in the book of Exodus, of course, we have lots of conversations about the names of God. We have Moses saying to God, you all know, what's your name at the burning bush? And, of course, our ark is in the image of a burning bush. Moses says, what's your name? And God says, eh, he is my name. I will be is my name. It's not a good enough answer for Moses. He keeps pressing. And, and God, of course, says, eh, yeah, asher, eh, yeah. My name is, I'll be what I'll be. Literally. I will be what I will be. I will be different things at different times to different people in different circumstances with different communities in different ages. That's who God will be. Because the holiness, the sacredness, the kedusha that we experience or feel or teach or pass down from one generation to the next in each generation depends on how we relate in, to the world around us. So in the Midrash on God trying to explain God's name to Moses, this Midrash quotes God simply saying, Ani nikra lefi ma'asai. Meaning, in Hebrew, means, I will be known by what I do. I'm known by what I do. Because you may remember at one point, Moses also, when he's up getting the commandments, spends 40 days up there and he turns to God and he says, show me your essence. Show me who you are. Show me your essence. And God says to Moses, nobody can see me and live. So close your eyes. You can't see me, but I will cause all of my acts of goodness to pass before you, and that's how you know who I am. So, how did the Israelites, the children of Israel, how did they know God's name? They knew God's name was Adonai Tzvaot, the God of armies, because God defeated the Egyptian armies. Because there they were, helpless, standing on the shore of the sea, the Egyptian army's coming, we all know the story, we all saw the movies, how many versions of the movies there were. God's the army is coming. Moses holds his hand up. Ultimately, somebody steps into the water, has faith. The water parts. They go cross, and the Egyptians follow them, and the water closes up, and all the Egyptian army, most powerful army on earth, dies, according to the story. We're good storytellers. And we got to be good storytellers. We're still remembering these stories 3,000 years later, telling the same stories. It's a pretty good storyteller. And we're redeemed. These ragtag group of, mixed group of slaves, ex-slaves, somehow is redeemed and saved from the most powerful army on earth. So therefore, God is, the face of God, 
the name of God is Redeemer. God is Redeemer. That's God's name because we turned around and they were gone and we were redeemed. And in every experience we have of the sacred in our lives or in the world, that's how we know God's names. That's how this original list that I passed out, sent out of God's names, so many of them reflect qualities. So if I were to ask you, you can do this in the chat, that would be fun, assuming I can see it. If I were to ask you, what name of God, what name of the divine speaks the most to you, individually, personally, as a result of your own life experience? Somebody tell me what you would say. Let me see if I can see it. I'm really bad at this. I have such respect for Rabbi Bernstein, who does this almost every day. Compassion. Compassion. Harachaman. It's one of God's names. The compassionate one. Right? I? Oh, I like that. How often have I said to people, these are God's hands, these are God's eyes, this is God's mouth, these are God's ears, this is how God works in the world. It's through, through us. Love. Love that. You know, Ahava is one of God's names of these 70. Being whatever is needed and wanted in the moment, I love that. Exactly. Victoria, I love that because that's exactly how we experience our lives. You know, uh, I think I mentioned uh, one of the meditations that I listen to every morning, several that I rotate as I meditate every single morning, is one of Louise Hay's uh, meditations. And at some point in this particular meditation that I like, uh, she says, this is the only moment that exists. This is the only moment that is. You know, it's like almost a throwaway line because we all know that. If I said to you, this is the only moment that is, we know that this is the only moment. But, you know, I heard that one day that really struck me. Oh, this is the only moment that is. This moment. So why am I worried about all that stuff in the past and dragging it into the future when that doesn't even exist? This is it. So what can I do in this moment, this moment, this and then this moment, this moment? And that's how we experience the divine and the sacred every day if we are open to it. Somebody said healer, healer, uh, rofei cholim. It's one of the morning prayers. We identify God as rofei cholim, healer of the sick. In fact, the list of morning prayers, that's the traditional list of morning prayers, is a whole list of attributes of God that we identify. Rofe Cholim is one of them. Malbish Arumim. God is the one who clothes the naked. And all of the things that we in our Tikkun Olam committees and our ethics committees and our social action committees want to do to make a difference in the world, all of those are reflections of what we identify as names of God and qualities of God. So I wanted to say something. Oh, I wanted to share this with you because you know how when I give high holiday sermons, which I get to do every year at least once, when I do high holiday sermons, my favorite thing is to start with a story. So pretend I'm starting with a story. So after starting a new diet, this is a story someone sent me about because they were in this class. After starting a new diet, oh, Joyce said healer. Thanks, Joyce. After starting a new diet, I altered my drive to work to avoid passing my favorite bakery. I accidentally drove by the bakery this morning, and as I approached, there in the window were a host of chocolates and donuts and cheesecakes. So this person who sent me this wrote, I felt this was no accident, so I prayed, God, it's up to you. If you want me to have any of those delicious goodies that I know really aren't good for me, create a parking place, create a parking space for me directly in front of the bakery. And sure enough, on the eighth time around the block, there it was. <laughs> I could have used that for a holiday sermon. I, was, I like that. Anyway, that's often how people relate to their own sense of what's holy and what's not. Uh, here's God explained by an eight-year-old, but I'm not. But I do want to say something about names because we're talking about names, and I want you to think about your own name uh, and how you got your name, your first name. Some of you have first names, middle names, last names. Some of you have lots of names, you know, depending upon what culture you come from. You can have names that identify your mother, your father, etc., etc. Certainly in the Hispanic culture, there's all kinds of names that are 
uh, appended to your individual name. And then we think about last names and where did those surnames, those last names come from? And I started thinking about it because this is so much about, you know, what are the names of God? What do you mean the names of God? Where do names come from altogether? And in Jewish life, in the Torah, names and naming is such an important thing. It's the very first thing that, you know, Adam, Adam, the first human being, is told to do is to give names to everything. Adam gets to run around and name all the animals and name everything that Adam sees in that version of Genesis. There's two versions of creation in Genesis. In that version, Adam is the namer. And because giving something a name gives you power over that thing. That's how human beings function. When you can name something, that's why people use nicknames when they want to put that often, when they want to feel powerful over somebody else on the playground, or even when they're growing up as adults. Call them a name. Call them a name, and when they react, you just became more powerful than they did. By your name, by naming them, by you giving them shorty, fatty, whatever name you want to give someone that's a negative name, you think is a negative name, and that they feel bad about, therefore you've gotten power over them. That's the very first thing in the Torah that God commanded Adam to do is give names to everything, you know. And so where do our names come from? I'm sure some of you know, in the Ashkenazic world, in the Ashkenazic world of Eastern Europe and all, uh, Jews were compelled to take last names in the in the Austro-Hungarian Empire in about 17, in the 1780s, 1787, and in Tsarist Russia, in eight, as late as 1844, they were given names. Before that, it was like, you know, when you're called to the Torah. So-and-so, the son or daughter, well, girls weren't called to the Torah then, there, well, as they are here. But you were the son of somebody or you're the daughter of somebody. <clears throat> That's That was your name, you know. And then when they got names, that was one of the primary ways that people got last names, as we know. <coughs> Patronymics, son of. Interesting for Jews, in Yiddish or German, son would be denoted either as son, S-O-H-N, or with an E-R. That's another way of doing it. In most Slavic languages, like Russian or Polish, it would be witch, W-I-C-H, or wits, W-I-C-T-Z. For example, the son of Mendel, as you know, would become Mendelssohn, of course. The son of Abraham would be Abramson, or Avramovich. Uh, the son of Manasseh became Manashevitz. That's where that came from. You know, the son of Isaac is Itzkowitz. You know, the son of Berl might be Berliner, or that might be because we got names based on places. Lots of us have names. I don't. Lots of us have names. Um, I have both. My first last name was Schneider, which was a, a profession name, right? Schneider is a tailor. So, um, and my second last name, my current last name, is Reuben, which is, of course, named after one of the tribes. So there are biblical names. People got names either because they got to, if they got to pick them, they picked them out of the Torah, and they named themselves one of the tribes or something else. If they were given names, forced to get names throughout history, they either would be given a name based on place, Berlin, Bayer, Berger, Frankel, Eisenberg, different places, Gordon from Grodno, Lithuania, different cities, that's how you got your last name. Or you got it because of their, as I said, profession. Or they got it because they were the son or daughter of somebody. Or they got it because, you know, let's see, like merchants. Garfinkel meant diamond dealer. Or Kaufman literally meant merchant. Or Saltzman meant salt merchant. Or Tuckman meant cloth merchant. Waxman was a wax dealer. You know, Zucker or Zuckerman was a sugar merchant. You know, so if you traced your own last names and wonder where they came from, it's fascinating to discover which of those names were picked for you. And then there's all those famous stories, of course, of people, immigrants coming into Ellis Island and allegedly the people writing down their names just wrote whatever names they could they could hear when they couldn't hear from the right language, and they just shortened it. And then there's all those people, <clears throat> me included, who changed their names. 
There are lots of immigrants who changed their name to be more American, right? Who changed what they thought were Jewish names to be more American, or they thought they were you know, Irish names to be, whatever it was, there was that wave of immigration that was looked down upon, and so you wanted to be looked up upon, or at least not looked down upon, so you changed your name to be something more generic, or more American, or more whatever. And then, just like people who make Aliyah to Israel, very often change the name to a Hebrew, a Hebrew last name. They choose a name, Golda Meir. You know, her last name wasn't Meir. What was it? Suddenly forgot. Anyway, it wasn't Golda Meir. She moved to Israel and changed it to Golda Meir. Anyway, so, you know, we all have, that's, that's sort of the Ashkenazic version of names. Or it's personality traits. Alter, which means old. Ultimate. Dreyfus, which in one sense meant three-legged. Could be someone who walked with a cane. Ehrlich was honest. Frum, devout. Gottlieb is a god lover. Pfeiffer is a whistler. Gross is big, or Grossman, right? Fried or Friedman was happy. That's, we got names that way. You know, and then, then we were given names that were often insulting names. Gans meant goose, or Indic, Indike, which meant turkey, or Cobb, K-A-L-B. I had a friend growing up in Ira Cobb. Cobb means cow. They didn't pick that for themselves. Somebody gave them that name because it was derisive, or their animal names, or some Hebrew names. In any event, um, What's interesting is in the Sephardic world, it's a whole different story. Sephardic Jews, first of all, in the Iberian Peninsula, they started giving surnames in the 10th century, much earlier. And it was fully popular by the time it was the 15th century, still way earlier than in Eastern Europe. And pre-expulsion, we all remember the expulsions of the Jews from the Iberian Peninsula, famous 1492 expulsion, Pre-expulsion, they were mostly place names or Arabic names or occupations or Hebrew names. Abarbanel and Franco, Marcos, Toledano, Zacuto, Amaris. Post-expulsion, Jewish names became Christian names. Jewish, Golda, Malvovich. Um, because Jews were forcibly baptized and then they were given Christian names to be like Christians around them. So what became popular Jewish post Expulsion names were De Costa, De Fonseca, Gomez, Nunes, Mendez, Rodriguez. Lots of those were Jews. Um, some of you went to uh, New Mexico uh, and were part of that trip that uh, studied the conversos who ended up in, in New Mexico, and many of their names, and you could follow their surnames that were clearly traced back to the expulsion. By the way, one of my favorite lists that I have on the homepage of my computer, you can tell I'm a rabbi by this list. Jews were expelled from England, this is my list, Jews were expelled from England in 1290, expelled from France in 1306, and again in 1394. Jews were expelled from Hungary in 1349. Jews were expelled from Austria in 1421, you're getting the picture. Jews were expelled from Lithuania in 1445 and 1495. Jews were expelled from Spain in 1492, from Portugal in 1497. Prohibited from living in Russia from the 15th century to the end of the 18th century. Expelled from Bohemia and Moravia in 1744. And then, of course, we had 6 million who were killed in the Holocaust and 900,000 Jews who fled and were driven out of Arab lands middle of the 20th century as Israel was becoming a state. Um, Believe it or not, I was having dinner with someone last... uh, I'm sorry, I was having lunch with someone today, who was telling me about, um, okay, I'll tell you this. I was having lunch with someone today, and he was telling me about how he and his wife and two other couples that are close friends of theirs were trying to decide what is it that would have to happen in um, the United States that would trigger them moving out of the country. Students of the Holocaust going, well, they didn't leave. They didn't leave. They didn't leave when this happened. They didn't leave when that happened. What would have to happen here for them, these people, I didn't bring it up, to feel that there was an expulsion expulsion coming on, something that was worthy of them literally leaving? You know, it's like I have this conversation often with interfaith families, interfaith couples, because as I'm sure you know, most of the weddings I do are interfaith weddings. Did I tell you I'm doing a wedding this uh, Sunday of uh, 
the bride grew up as a Hindu and the groom grew up with a Hindu mother and a Muslim father and I'm doing their wedding and neither of them are Jewish? Well, I told you now, anyway. So um, you might wonder why they came to me to do their wedding uh, because they asked their uh, wedding coordinator, do you know anybody who will do a sort of non-denominational service that still feels spiritual on some level? And she said, oh, yeah, call Rabbi Rubin. <laughs> He'll do it. So they did. So uh, it should be an interesting experience on Sunday. In any event, um, it, it was a reminder to me when they showed up. <coughs> you know, how, notice how I leapt from expulsion and how much we should worry about our country kicking us out to uh, uh, Muslim and Hindus getting married. But, you know, this is the ebb and flow of, of life. We, one of the things we Jews do is we carry around us in the past. And we carry with us, and what I started to say was, my conversation with interfaith couples very often with the non-Jewish partner is, do you know what you're getting into? Do you know what you're getting into? Meaning, do you know that by and large, Jews are paranoid? By and large, the Jewish community always doing this looking over their shoulder, waiting for the next thing to happen. I said, and, you know, and as the cute saying goes, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean people aren't out to get you. He said, because we come by it honestly as a result of our thousands of years of history of persecution. He said, and so it's built into sort of the genetic makeup of the Jewish community that we laugh about it and we joke about it and we talk about it, but it's... It's, um, what did my wife always tell me? Yiddish family used to say, it's laughing with yachikas, you say? Yeah, laughing with yachikas, which means you're laughing, but not really inside, you know. You're laughing outside and dying inside. Because this is our experience. And as a result, watch this segue, for thousands of years, the, the language of prayer, the God we have called upon, depends on the circumstances often of our community. When we are thriving and living well and feeling safe-ish and feeling successful, suddenly God is the God of compassion and caring and love and generosity and healing and wholeness. And when things get scary, we start praying to Adonites of Aot and the God of Redemption, praying that God is my shepherd, I shall not want. We start quoting the 23rd Psalm and praying that that shepherd will somehow show up for us and uh, and guide us into the next the next stage of life safely. So I told you that I was going to <clears throat> I told you that I was going to uh, say something about whoops the names of God in this prayer book. And so I want to read you something from the introduction of our prayer book about names of God. The most difficult translation issue is the question of God language. The classical translation of the name of God, yud heh vav Adonai, is Lord, a masculine noun that does not work because of its gender which actually makes me think we were having a conversation the other day about all the people who now whose pronouns are now they and them, which I'm sure you have either run into or certainly know of. It's sort of the thing now, they and them. And we were so ahead of the curve, we Jews, because one of the most common names for God is Elohim, which is plural. God is a they and a them in Hebrew, the God of creation, you know, Yomar Elohim, and God said, Yior, let there be light, and there was light. God is a they and a them in Jewish theology. Something to think about. Anyway, I'll get there. So, it's a masculine noun. It doesn't work as a living imagery. Furthermore, it's not consistent with a theology that stresses God's imminence, God's inside. God made manifest through human action, through nature, and through the workings of the human heart. After a careful review of the responses to the experimental prayer book, Shabbat prayer book that was sent out by the Reconstructionist Movement before they finally published the ultimate 
call it a Shema that we use, and lengthy discussions among the members of the commission, a decision was reached. Everywhere that the four letters Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey, which we used to translate as Lord, appears in Hebrew, a descriptive name of God appears in half caps in the English translation. That's this list of 109 names. Several reasons underlie this decision. Number one, it solves the problem that many people have in relating to Lord. Number two, it conveys some of the complexity and the freshness of Jewish metaphors that refer to the divine. Number three, by explicating the many ways that God's presence is made manifest in Jewish liturgy in our prayer book, this mode of translation encourages every worshiper to become aware of the elements of the divine infused in all the many parts of our lives and all the many parts of our world. The use of these many metaphors is also meant to suggest that no words are adequate for naming or containing the divine. It's all the images together point to a reality beyond themselves. Now we've suddenly segued into Jewish mysticism, because what the Jewish mystics taught, the original list that I gave you of 70 names, it's the last thing. Number 70 here, what I put was, the Kabbalists, the Jewish mystics, created a 45-letter name of God based on yud Hey vav Hey. The Talmud taught, the 45-letter mystical name of God is not to be transmitted to anyone unless he is unassuming, humble, middle-aged, without a bad temper, not given to alcoholic indulgence and forbearing, which, of course, leads many of us out. But what the mystics said was, I lied, I didn't have it on there. What the mystics said was that God's name is actually all of the versions of God's name strung together If you could read all of them as one word, that would be God's name. And in the Zohar, in the book of Jewish mysticism, that's the most popular one, one of the mystic rabbis even said, God's name is the entire Torah. God's name is, because if you've ever read, looked at Torah texts or read about the Torah, one of the the first things you learn is there's no vowels There's no punctuation or vowels in the Torah. It's all consonants, which is why we can read many words differently, depending upon how you break it up and what you emphasize and, you know, how punctuation changes how things are, the understanding of sentences and words. And so because there's no punctuation and there's no vowels in the Torah, you can read as if, the entire Torah is one long, gigantic, enormous word, or in this case, name of God. God's name, say the mystics, is all of Jewish experience together. That's God's name. Just like if I were to ask, say, if I were to tell you one of two or three of my favorite names of God from Jewish tradition, I think I mentioned last time, One of my favorite names of God is Hamakom, the place, which comes out of that story of of, uh, Jacob running away from his brother Esau in the middle of the night, (coughs) going to sleep in the middle of the wilderness, using a rock as a pillow, having a dream, ladders up to heaven and angels going up and down. And when he woke up, and God making a promise, when he woke up, here's a whole book based on this one sentence. This book is called God Was in This Place and I Didn't Know. Brilliant book by Rabbi Larry Kushner. Jacob wakes up and that's what he says. Yesh Adonai b'makom hazeva anochi lo yadati. God was in hamakom, this place, and I didn't know. And from that sentence, the rabbinic tradition said, ah, hamakom, the place, is one of God's most important names. Because they ask, where can you find God? Where can you encounter God? And they say, Hamakom, in the place where you're open to experiencing God. Where do you find holiness? Any place in the world or in outer space, anywhere in the universe where you are open to the experience of the divine, that's where God is. God isn't a person, isn't a thing. God is an experience. 
That's why I many, 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 many times, and I'm sure you've all heard it, if you heard me at all, which you all have, um, I've often said to people, God isn't something I believe in. God is something I experience in the everyday miracles of life. I've said that for my whole career. God is not a belief in me. God is an experience. What's the experience? I woke up. That's the first experience. This is the experience. My hands work. My heart's beating. The blood's moving. My body is functioning. That's my the experience of God's presence. And then I look outside. We are, Didi and I are lucky. We live in a beautiful condo here in the Palisades. We are at the very top of Los Angeles. I can't remember. But when you look out our windows, all you see is trees. It's like we're in a our own little bird sanctuary, forest. And every morning we sit out on our patio and we have coffee together and we look at the birds and the trees and we have, you know, hummingbird feeders and hummingbirds are always there every day. And I go, this is an experience of the divine. This is an experience of God's presence. Not that there's some being showing up, but the wonder of the universe itself, the miracle of uh, who created that tree? It wasn't me. I don't know how whoever created it did it, but they really did a good job. Because look at that tree, and look at that leaf, and look at that bird, and look at that everything in the world. The miracles that are around us every day, those miracles are incredible. Ralph Waldo Emerson once wrote, If spring came but once in a century instead of once a year, or burst forth with the sound of an earthquake and not in silence, What wonder and expectation would there be in all hearts to behold the miraculous change? I always love that, which is why I have it on a card. I wrote it down. Keep it somewhere. I mean, that's it. That's that we walk sightless through miracles every day. We walk sightless through, we encounter God, quote, God, every day in the everyday miracles that surround us. Any makom, any place where we are open to experiencing something sacred, the sacred is there, right? Just like one of God's most popular names in Jewish tradition is Hashem, which is kind of redundant because Hashem in Hebrew means the name. So one of God's names is the name. (laughs) But, you know, traditional Jews don't want to say Adonai unless they're in prayer. So they, they would read Baruch Atah, Hashem, Elokeinu, Melech, they don't want to say God's name, not when they're in a prayer moment. So they wouldn't read a prayer if they're not actually praying it. So they created the metaphor Hashem, the name, to stand for all of the names of God, Hashem. And what I love about Hashem as one of God's names is, and there's a quote from Deuteronomy that says, this honored and awesome name, God, which is where they got the idea of Hashem as a, the name as, a, as a, one of God's names. But what's so cool about it to me is the name, it means what name? Whatever name you give, the name that you give to God is God's name. You know, I mean, imagine having the power, you get to name God. I mean, it sounds silly, I know, but that, that's the reality. The reality is you name everything. You name everything that you experience in the world. And the way you experience it very often, mostly, through the way we name things, how we identify them, the words we attach to them, is so often how we experience them. We say, Ribono Shalolam. That's a famous traditional way of referring to God, which literally means master of the universe. Ribono Shalolam, master of the universe. And, but, you know, it's like the power that animates life. When I get up every morning and I read through the traditional morning prayers, there's a whole list of them. I do it while I'm doing a Qigong exercise, but that's for discussion for another time. And while I'm doing that exercise in the morning, those particular 10-minute slot, I go through in my mind these traditional prayers. So, I'll say, Baruch HaTah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam HaMayim. It's one of those prayers. I don't literally mean, blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, even though I just said those words. Rokah HaAretz HaMayim literally means who stretched out the land against the water. 
right? And it was our ancestors' traditional, I think I mentioned this last time too, our ancestors' traditional wonder and marvel that the water stops somewhere and the land, then we have earth, and the water doesn't just keep going, you know, and flood us like the nightmare of a tsunami, that we don't have that all the time, that you can go down to the beach here in the Palisades and there's a beach, and you know where the border is. God is that power, according to us, who stretched out the land to stop the water from overcoming. Because one of the things that God does in the very beginning of creation in the Torah is separate the water from the land, right? First God separates the dark from the light, and then God separates the earth, us, from everybody else, and then God separates the water from the earth. Those are the broadest categories we have. So one of our morning prayers, that's how we identify what God is, is the separator of the water from the land. Or we say, Rofea, Holim, God who heals the sick. Is God somewhere healing my sickness? Like looking for my sickness? Maybe. If you believe that, you are entitled to believe that. I rather think the miracle of my body, which is built and created not by myself, but created as a self-healing organism that I know when I cut myself, I'm going to heal, and that we all heal our healing each other and ourselves every single day, all day long. You know, if you study bodies, you know our body is constantly fighting off bacteria and viruses and all kinds of things every single day of our lives. Our body is healing itself. Things come. We send our little white corpuscles there, or they take care of it, or whatever Whatever happens. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. But my body does that. You know, somebody out there doesn't do it. I'm making my own pharmacy in here, right? And healing myself. So when we say, when we identify God as healer of the sick, yes, we pray. And I think prayer has an impact in the world. But I don't think that the, as a supernatural being who goes, oh, Stephen's praying right now. Let me see. Where's my list, says God, of all the million, billions of people out there that are praying whatever. Wait a minute. I don't think Steve, I don't like Steve's prayer today, but Cheryl's prayer, that's pretty good. Susan's prayer, she's got a good one. You know, it's like you start thinking about the literalness of what we say. Um, But I can identify God as the healing power within me as part of the holiness and divinity of my life that I experience or all of the other lists of the traditional prayers. And when I say, Baruch Adonai Olam, I know what I'm saying is, this is a Jewish prayer about the miracle of the world, the miracle of my body, the miracle of that somehow we, although we don't do it enough, clothe those who need clothes and house those who need housing, although we're not doing a very good job of it. There's 60,000 homeless here in L.A. alone, right? And every time... And one of those traditional prayers is we identify God as the one who who provides me with all my needs. So imagine if that's how you think of God is you can't help but think anything other than gratitude. Gratitude for my body. Every time I go through that list, I'm therefore grateful for my body, grateful for the world outside, grateful that we're not having a tsunami, grateful that I'm housed, grateful that I have clothes, grateful that I have food. I go through that list of, and I identify that as the sacred in my life. And in so doing, that's the conversation I have with people who say, I'm not really religious, Rabbi. I'm kind of spiritual, but I'm not really religious. And, or I don't really believe in God, but when they tell me what they do believe and how they do experience the world, they're often the most, as most religious people that I, you can meet because they recognize that when I see these faces that I'm looking at right now that are still here, thank you, those faces that are still here listening to me and my rambling of tonight, that's where I see God's presence. And there's nothing more powerful than that, than identifying, look, one of my favorite Mordecai Kaplan quotes is, Kaplan wrote, we cannot afford to wait with our health until we know the final truth about our bodies and minds, neither can we afford to wait with our ethical and spiritual health until we know the ultimate truth about the world and about God. We are God wrestlers. This famous book by Arthur Waskow called God Wrestling. I'm going to end tonight by once again showing you these books because 
Human beings never tire of this subject. This one's called Why God Won't Go Away. A History of God, which is kind of funny. How to Know God, that's Deepak Chopra. Finding God, 10 Jewish Responses, or Kabbalah and the Practice of Mystical Judaism called God is a Verb. This is just random group that I pulled off my shelf. Because this is the constant human search for a sense of the divine, for a sense of the holy, to understand that which is beyond knowing, to wrestle with the mysteries of life, to recognize that if you read through this list, I encourage it, I wanted you to get it, both to see there's 109 metaphors for God in in the Reconstructionist prayer book, but also because this is how we experience the divine in the everyday encounters with those around us. And I'm going to end with a, a poem by the the Hebrew poet Zelda. It's in our prayer book. I'm sure you may have heard it, some of you many times. But it's called Each of Us Has a Name. I thought how appropriate for this. Kol Ish Yeshem. Each of us has a name. Each of us has a name given by God and given by our parents. Each of us has a name given by our stature and our smile and given by what we wear. Each of us has a name given by the mountains and given by our walls. Each of us has a name given by the stars and given by our neighbors. Each of us has a name given by our sins and given by our longing. Each of us has a name given by our enemies and given by our love. Each of us has a name given by our celebrations and given by our work. Each of us has a name given by the seasons and given by our blindness. Each of us has a name given by the sea and given by our death. I had an unveiling yesterday and someone I didn't know. And at the unveiling, uh, the people that were there talked about the woman whose grave we were honoring and whose life we were honoring. And I made me think about tonight and this quest for God's name. Because as they talked about this woman and her impact on them, we were standing in this cemetery in Santa Monica, and it was without question a sacred space. And what made the cemetery a sacred space was not all the people who were buried there, but it was the love that all of those people were sharing that was touched by that woman in her life. That that legacy of that woman, her name that they kept speaking, who Molly was to them. Molly was this to me. Molly was this to me. Molly said this to me. Molly did this to me. And it made me once again remember that Hashem, the name that really matters for the sacredness, the divinity, the holiness in our lives is the names of those people with whom we have relationships that add the love and the caring and the depth and the quality and the meaning to our lives. Uh, And so I want to thank all of you for showing up tonight. And I want to thank all of you for being those names that have for 35 years added that meaning to my life. And um, I will see some of you next time.